we thank you for this uh, this evening, for this beautiful weather, for this opportunity to meet together, to look into your word, and, and this uh, one of uh, maybe the, the last few um, times we're going to look at Galatians here as a, as a group for now, and so just pray that you would speak through Michael, pray that uh, his words would be your words, and we would gain a new insight and, and wisdom from this book. In Yeshua's name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so tonight we're in the 17th study. I only know this because I keep all the audio files and I've just been labeling one, two, three. So this would be number 17 tonight. And I was just curious, have you guys been blessed by the study on Galatians? Yeah. So um, is there anything, and, and you, you may get asked this next week, but is there any particular uh, thing that's really blessed you to learn or blessed you to find out? in this study. And anybody can share. To be able to ask questions. Good. Well, most of our studies, I hope, are like that because um, questions are an important aspect of learning. You know, it's something they even teach on Sesame Street. (laughs) So, but, you know, uh, simply asking questions, that's a very important aspect of learning. And, you know, there's only one bad question. It's the one you don't ask. So, as I say, that's the main thing. But I've been blessed. I haven't been through all the Galatian studies, but this has been enjoyable for me. And um, so we're going to look at a little bit of review, because David was talking last week about the fruit of the Spirit. And I know that it's not an exhaustive study when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, because um, there's lots of... Fruit was an, an excellent illustration within Old Testament and New Testament times from everything to the, the naughty figs, if you remember in Jeremiah, to Matthew chapter 7 where Yeshua says, you will know them by their fruits. And that's Matthew 7.20 and you can look at that whole passage. The context of that passage, he's talking specifically about false prophets And he gives a great illustration saying, a bad tree will never produce what? And a good tree will never produce? And so that's an important illustration just to get started. And I was thinking about fruit and thinking about how all the different types of fruit. And one of the things we shared last week that was, I thought, was helpful to somebody was that God doesn't grow fruit on our time frame. He grows it on his time frame. And we can even see that naturally trees, some years they don't produce fruit, other years they do. And it's part of God's natural cycle of how he does things. And so when you look at the fruits of the Spirit, it's important to remember, not everything's just going to appear in a certain time. And this isn't the only passage on the fruit of the Spirit. I have several passages listed on the fruit of the Spirit. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm going to pick on just one. And it's an important one, I feel, because it was the one that really opened my eyes up to the fruit of the Spirit because the fruits of the Spirit comes in all shapes, all sizes. You know, just think of your own produce grocery store. You have all these different kind of fruits. And as people were saying, you had the good, you have the bad, and you have the ugly. (laughs) Some, some fruits, like to me, I think dried fruit used to be the scariest thing. A dried date or a dried fig, I thought that looked so scary. 
When I was a little kid, I never wanted to eat them. They looked so weird and awful looking. And I was, I, I always grew up thinking they were bugs kind of thing. <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of sometimes how some fruits are. And then you look at some fruit, like this week I had a mango. And those, like, it seems like that's a lot of work for just a little fruit sometimes. A lot of work. But it's good fruit. I mean, and I think about how some fruits are built that way. you got to really work to get the fruit or to get the good part of that fruit out. And you even look at something even like in Israel. I don't know if anyone's ever had a pomegranate and the number of seeds that are in there. And some things are, you know, there's 613 seeds, just like the Torah. <laughs> and there are some people that are crazy enough to actually count it, you know, to see if it really comes out that way. But I mean, there's all kinds of different illustrations. So we're going to look at just one other of the fruit passages. And um, if I could ask one of the cables, if we would look at 2 Timothy, we're going to look at verses chapter 3 and verses 10 to 12. Oh, yeah. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. You, however, closely followed my teaching, manner of life, purpose, faithfulness, patience, love, perseverance, as well as persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but the Lord rescued me from them all. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Messiah Yeshua will be persecuted. Okay, so Paul starts out by talking about some of the common ones. We have faithfulness, love, we have patience. Many of you guys know those from our previous passage, right? Mm -hmm. Then he talks about something different. Persecutions. And even afflictions. And I never used to think of those as fruits. And maybe that's not something you even think of as fruits. But as we read on, Paul tells us anyone that lives in a godly life is going to come upon these type of things. Where they're going to suffer for the Lord, where they're going to sometimes face persecution. And in many ways, these are like the ugly fruits. These are the fruits no one likes to talk about in Scripture. But at times, these are the tougher fruits that kind of make our, their way into our life, that make us struggle, that make us hurt, that you're saying, you know, I didn't really want that fruit. I don't like that way that fruit tastes or something like that. But they're part of following God. You get these fruits also. And Yeshua talks about them over and over again, that part of knowing who He is and part of knowing Him is connecting and having those what he calls, uh, Paul calls earlier in another epistle, Philippians, he says, the fellowship of his sufferings. And he says, by these things, I get to know the Lord really, really well. Really, really well. And these are the things sometimes that challenge us, because everybody likes, you know, when we when we go to the store, we move to, I'm getting some apples, I'm getting some oranges, I'm getting some bananas. Because those are the fruits I really, really like. And many people want all the good fruits. I want some peace. Wait, you mean I have to get perseverance too? I have to get patience? Oh, man, these are the harder fruits. These are, and when you look in the Romans 5, one of the, one of the fruits there is character. One of the things people don't like to get. That means I'm going to have to be somebody I wasn't before, you know? 
And these things grow into our life over time. And I, so, you know, in each of these sections, go back and look and say, hey, some of these are in Galatians 5, but some of these I've never seen before. But they're all kind of fruits. And part of the point of fruit is knowing that fruit was all made by God to be good for us, to make us healthy, to make us well-rounded, so that we would have a good body and a good relationship with Him. And so even the tough fruits at times have to come into our lives. And so I think of those as... And you know some of the fruits that are in Israel are sometimes not your standard fruits. Like if you think about some of the fruits in Israel, does anybody know what kind of fruit they have there? That maybe not you have here. Okay. Well, sometimes they have some that are like ours, like grapes, but then they have something like dates. They have something like figs. Those are something probably, you know, not everyone will go to the store and say, hey, I think I'm in the mood for some figs, or I'm in the mood for a pomegranate. And in Israel, they actually have oranges that are green, which is kind of like, wow, I didn't know that they even had oranges in Israel, but they're actually green and they look different. And so even just in the land of Israel, things are a little bit different as well. So that's kind of my curtailing into fruit in a sense. And I liked how David shared that part of the life of fruit is that tension, that tension that he was talking about last week. Because um, as we get into tonight, I see that in this main passage of Galatians that we're going to look at, we're going to have the same type of tension and the same type of looking for how do you balance things in this passage of Galatians. So we're going to now read, we're going to kind of switch gears and get into tonight's the 10 verses. And since Brittany won't do it, Nikki won't do it, Andrea will do it. Yes. <laughs> okay, so Galatians 6, 1 through 10? Yes. Okay. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught doing something wrong, you who are directed by the Ruach, restore such a person in the spirit of gentleness. Looking closely at yourselves, so you are not tempted also. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the Torah of Messiah. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he is fooling himself. Rather, let each one examine his own work, then he will have pride in himself alone, and not in comparison to anyone else. For each one will carry his own load. Now let the one who has taught the word share all good things with his teacher. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he also shall reap. For the one who sows in the flesh will reap, will reap corruption from the flesh. But the one who sows in the ruach will reap from the ruach eternal life. So let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have an opportunity, let us do good toward all, especially those who belong to the household of faith. Thank you. Okay, so the first part that it talks about is correction, spiritual correction. And it's an important aspect, and many people would look at the idea of spiritual correction as a dinner of ground glass, as some people like to call it. It's not the, no one likes confrontation, no one likes telling something, hey, you're doing something wrong. It's not a fun topic overall, but it is part of God's economy. We have to be willing to both give and receive correction. 
And so correction is part of our spiritual walk. It's part of our identity as people of God. And it's part of our ministry. We are called to be people that reconcile. Reconcile simply means bringing someone back to God. And it's part of God's overall plan to bring about restoration. And so it's important, that's why I wrote, with spiritual correction, the most important thing we always want to do is restoration. Why do we want restoration? Otherwise you have disrepair. Well, that's part of that, that's part of it, yeah, because things will continue to be broken. That's true. That's one aspect of it. But it's really God's heart. God has always been after restoration. Even back in the Garden of Eden, when man fell, God wanted to make a way so that there would be restoration. Even when Yeshua comes, His ideal is to bring restoration. When we tell people about the Lord... It's ultimately always to bring them back to restoration. And so, one of the roads to restoration might you might think of is the road of repentance, but it can also be the road of correction. Because some people are going along the wrong road, and they need to be corrected. And there are some ways that we do that, and they work really well. And then there's other ways we do it, kind of like it says in the passage. You can do things in the flesh, or you can do things by the Spirit. So hopefully, you want to do them by the Spirit. And the main thing that we talk about when it comes to correction is learning to speak the truth in what? What happens if we have just truth? Well, someone may hear the truth, but after a while they'll feel and they'll be hurt and they won't they'll eventually learn to tune you out. Because they say all you ever speak to me is truth, all you ever want to tell me is what I'm doing wrong. And that's important. It is important to let people know what they're doing wrong. But on one hand, if all you ever give them is the truth, then they'll never have a sense or a feeling that they belong. What happens if you only give them love? Well, they know that you're, that you're not honest with them, that you're not factual. <clears throat> That's true. There's a sense of dishonesty or a disingenuousness to your relationship that you really don't care about them, in a sense, because you let them do things that are wrong. So it's important that you have a good balance of both learning to speak both truth and to speak it in love. What might that look like? What might? How do you practically do that? How do you like... Speak the truth in love. Does this dress make me look fat? <laughs> I prefer the blue one as opposed to the red one. I think it looks much better. I'm going to say gentleness. Gentleness? Gentleness is part of it? Humility. Okay. Gentleness and humility are a big part of how we want to give our message. and But the main thing when we talk here at Yishon about speaking the truth in love, we always want to um, have, let's see, we want to always give the one person, we always want to give the best 
We want to make it the best for everybody, best for all. And so you keep it in mind when you go to someone else to correct them, how would I want to hear this kind of correction? How would I want to, in a sense, bring this person back into restoration, but also, in a sense, make them feel built up about themselves? Because you can make someone feel that way. And so there's certain things you want to avoid and certain things you want to do. And one of the things you want to definitely do is stick with what is factual. What is factual. Now, correction is an important part of the lifestyle in the Bible because we've been talking about love one another. And when we look at um, the original sense of that love one another, we go back to Leviticus and it actually tells us in the verse before. Let's look at Leviticus 19 and verses 17 and 18. And how about one of the younger ones? Are they up for reading? Yeah, Fear or Zach? Oh, oh, really young. Yeah, why not? Or are you just going to want to be a warm body tonight? <laughs> Verse is it? Leviticus 19 and verses 17 and 18. Okay. You are not to hate your brother in your heart. Instead, you are to firmly rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You are not to take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Adonai. Okay. So within this passage, yours says you are to rebuke him. And the word rebuke it also says, does, in some versions you might have, you will surely rebuke him. And whenever you see surely, you know what that means? If you have surely, that means there's a double word there, or it's in usually, almost always, it means it's in the infinitive, if I'm saying that right, Rabbi David. Yeah. Meaning, in Hebrew, if you want to say something really strongly, you say the same word twice. And that's the infinitive. And so she said, when she read it, you will rebuke him frankly. In other words, it's saying, you don't do this, but you really do this. You make sure you really do this. And yeah, part it's of actually, the, It's actually the verbs back to back. Just, it's like, to rebuke, you rebuke. Is really what it's kind of what it's saying. So that's the infinitive. There's two, two verbs together. Two verbs together. Yeah. So that the emphasis is strong in this passage. And so within the very idea of loving your neighbor, you have the very idea of also rebuking or correcting. Now, what does it mean to rebuke or to correct? Can you just say, you know, and I always use the droids, because I'm always afraid. If I say somebody's name in membership class, if I say somebody's name, if I go out and say, oh, let's see, somebody who's not here. If I say something like Karen then if somebody knows a Karen, they're going to feel like, oh my gosh, she's saying that about poor Karen. So I always pick on R2-D2 and C-3PO because you can never mess up with them. And I say, C-3PO made R2-D2 really, really mad. So R2-D2 is going to go and correct him. And how would that look like? How would he, would he just say, R2-D2, you're a jerk. You're an idiot. Would he say something like that? No, he's a protocol droid. There's no way. <laughs> He's a protocol, sir. Of course, but I mean, 
The point is, you just don't say whatever you want. What you always want to come back to when we speak is we want to come back to simply facts. You know, R2-D2, you ran over my, my boots or my toes, and it hurt, you know? And that's simply just always laying out the facts of saying, when you correct someone, keep it simple. Keep it to just the facts. And for some people, that's kind of hard. And within this passage, it's important because Paul is giving two different commands here. He's saying, because most importantly in this whole area of Scripture, this is kind of the application. Paul's been explaining to us all these truths about Scripture, but now he's getting into, how do you live this out? How do you walk this out and do it? But it's simply, when you do it, when you correct someone, you have to remember, you might be on the other side of the stick one day. Where someone has to come and say, okay, now it's C-3PO's turn. You spilled the oil, and my wheels went sliding all over the place, and I couldn't drive very well. And R2-D2 will make several bleeps and blurps and not very happy with C-3PO. Whatever it might be. But I'm just simply saying, it always comes down to, you could be in the very same position. So keep in mind, when you're rebuking, how you want to put this, how you want to say this, and stick to just simple facts. Because we don't want people to think they can do one of the two ditches, which is either A, I'm never going to rebuke. I'm just going to love everybody and forgive everybody. And that's usually what we call stuffing. And if you stuff, what eventually happens is it comes out eventually. Or you can have the opposite, which is where you get so angry, you become the, the shooting volcano which is spewing and shooting rocks that no one wants to be around you. And so both of these ditches of being a volcano or being a stuffer aren't appropriate. So the happy medium is always trying to stay with facts, do it with gentleness, the way you would want to be, re- the way you want to be rebuked, the way you would like to be corrected. Now in the next section about bearing one another's burdens, and First of all, this is one of my key things about one another. And if you haven't seen the one another section yet in your notes, I'm sure, I'm not going to go through all the one another's, but there's a lot of them, if you haven't noticed. 23 to be exact. These are all in the New Covenant, the different one another's. Now, some of them we don't do, per se, like wash one another's feet. Maybe that might not be one that everyone does anymore. But there are still, it still applies. It still applies to how we live our life, as learning how we are with one another. And part of what I did in order to do this, one of the reasons why I wanted this all in, is because in order to do the Torah, in order to have a connection with the Torah, you always have to see it as relational. In other words, you can't do the Torah just you and God. There's always got to be other people involved. Always, always, always. In fact, there's a saying in the in the synagogue that it always takes two people to unroll the Torah. Or two people, to well, one to take the Torah and one to lift the Torah. One to carry the Torah and one to lift the Torah. And over and over, there's always a need for this relationship. Always a need to be connected in how we do, how we study, and how we teach. And so part of the purpose of the one and others is to see that relationship, 
that we're always, always connected to other people. And how we connect is important. And so within the text earlier, we saw two of the one another's, both love one another, and the other one was serve one another. Over and over again in Galatians 5, we saw these two specific one another's. And in getting to the one another's, it's important to understand that we as people have to be connected to each other. We will always have people. And it's not something you'll ever get away from. It's not something that's always fun and easy because somebody's going to probably step on your toes and make you mad. But that's part of what life is to be. And we're told not only does this happen in the Torah, like we read earlier in Leviticus 19, it says, bear one another as as it is in the Torah, as it fulfills the Torah. But this is what Messiah did. Messiah did this. He also bore our burdens, right? And the passage that we look at for that is Philippians chapter 2 and verses 4 to 7. And Kathy, would you be willing to read that passage? Philippians chapter 2 verses 4 to 7. first see that Messiah was God-like, which I think isn't a stretch for any of us. Messiah equals God. But the difference was, he chose not to stay like God, he chose to empty himself. And by emptying himself, he he became a man, but specifically, he did it for man, for all of mankind in a sense. And that's the part in which he does not look on his own what he can do by himself or what he could have done. He didn't think about looking at himself being God, but he looked at himself and saw the need that man had and wanted to, in a sense, humble himself. And because of this, he wants to learn to serve and be that way to other people. Now, you're probably wondering why I'm getting into all this and why get into all the one another's. Because much of the passage tonight is simply about reciprocation. How do we do something? How do we do something and know that it's going to be effective? How do we help someone? How do we bear someone other's burdens and know that in a sense we're going to have, you know, we're not going to be able to be taken advantage of? Or how do we do something? and know that that's really the thing that God wants us to do. And it goes back and forth at times because it is, it's a struggle to know how do we serve people. And so I put in your notes, there's two ditches that a lot of people, because this is something that's countercultural to our society and our culture. 
they're all about me. How is it going to work for me? And so on one hand, you may have people that are apathetic, which is just simply saying indifference. They don't care one way or another if they can help people. That's one ditch that you can fall in. And then the other ditch might be, how do I know I'm not enabling someone? How do I know that if I help them, they're just taking advantage of me? And I'm just in a, giving them, in a sense, an enabling stick. In a sense, allowing them to help me. And I'll tell you, as someone who's blind, it's really an easy trap to fall into because there are times I really do need help. Okay, But there are other times that I think about not just me, but I also think of all blind people. And the fact is, many people will not come in contact with any other blind person but me. And therefore, I always want to be the best representation of a blind person to everyone. And for that reason, even if I can't do it, I may try so that I'm a good witness or that I want to show that I can do something even though it may be inconvenient, even though it may be a struggle and it may stretch me at times. But at the same time, I look at it too and say, it's more convenient if I simply do this. And that's just personally how I feel. And there are all kinds of people who say, we always see blind people and we don't know. Should we help them? You know, should we just go and grab their arm and take them? You know, I'm like, no, whatever you do, don't grab a blind person. You might scare them or they might hit you thinking, who's this person just coming up and handling me? And I'm saying, you know, and I always think the best thing with, with people with disabilities is you should just simply ask them, do you need help? And then it's simply on them if they're going to simply either take the help or not take the help. And so it's, it's a balancing act at times of learning, how am I supposed to be this way? Because we see the spirit of the age and we see how Messiah, in a sense, warns us about these things. Don't let your love grow cold. Don't be disingenuous to people. You know, in the latter days, people will be like this. They'll be heartless. They'll be cold. And we see this over and over again in Scripture that we've got to always be on guard because apathy can always be at one side of our door where we're thinking, I'm not going to help that guy. It's going to be inconvenient for me, you know. But on the other hand, God always tells us also to be generous. Always tells us to be generous. From in the Torah when he says, when people come, make sure you have the open hand. He, they actually says that in Hebrew, the open hand, which is a sign of generosity. And so it's important to know, where do I find the middle ground? Where do I find the middle ground so I'm not enabling or so that I'm not, in a sense, becoming apathetic? And my answer to you is pray. And if you're still not sure, pray. And if you think you know the answer, pray again. Because God will always give you an answer to what, in a sense, what is my assignment? It might not be your assignment. It might be someone else's assignment 
to do something. And that's an important part of our relationship with God is saying, is this my assignment? I know I can do this. I may even have the money to do this. But is this what you want me to do, God? Because I want to do what you want me to do. And for all I know, it might be C-3PO's assignment. It might be Darth Vader's assignment. Whoever's assignment it might be, it might be someone else's assignment. And so it's important to pray and ask the Lord. It's really not about how good or how able-bodied you are. I should be able to say that myself. It's not about me. I'm standing up teaching Bible study. And if you had asked me 10 years ago, would I be doing this? I would have said no. But the fact is, it's not about abilities. It's always about availability. God is always interested in using whatever is available and what is willing and has the heart to do what he asks them to do. And so that's a good way of knowing. And within this passage, we kind of have a back and forth Paul going, well, on one hand, people should learn to bear their own loads, right? Verse 5, right? People need to learn to bear their own loads. And that's true in some cases. That's really true. That's the only way some of us learn to walk and handle the struggles of life, when our faith is tested. And then there are other times where God says, we need to get in there and bear up on this person because they're really hurting and they have no one else. They're alone and they need people. And the only way you can surely know is if you pray and pray again and pray a third time if you haven't gotten that message yet. And if anyone wants to pray, we always pray an hour before the Bible study. Just a quick commercial. Okay, moving on. <laughs> moving on. The bar, I want to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Michael, just real quick before we leave that Galatians 6-2, just that one another thing is really powerful, especially in this, in this here in Galatians. If you look at all those verses and other places where you see that, that the Greek, you know, uh, one another's, in the places where it's this kind of theme of doing things for one another, you see that word, uh, one another, with, in, what they call an emphatic position, like the beginning of a sentence. We don't, they don't have bold or underline or italics in Greek, but they put things in the front of sentences. We don't do that in English. So like literally in that Galatians passage, it starts off with one another. You wouldn't have to, like grammatically, you wouldn't have to start off with one another because other places it often puts it in an afterward position. That makes sense. But here it literally says, one another, the burden bear. So it's, it's actually really it's very important. It is very important. It's very important. And I want us to... That's the emphasis of the sentence. I want to, in a sense, look at a one another or a bearing one another. And I'm going to pick on you, John, if that's okay. If you would read this passage, Mark chapter 2, and verses 1 to 12. Because sometimes it's better to just take an illustration and use it for the scripture. Sure. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered. So so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat 
the paralyzed man was lying on. When Yeshua saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Yeshua knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But you have, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive your sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you to get up, take your mat, and go home. Okay, so in this story, we have several characters. Can you tell me the characters in this story? Well, everybody knows this guy. I know that, right? Who else is in the story? The paralytic. Okay, um, Brett P. His four friends. Okay. Anybody else? Scribes. Okay. Teachers. The mob people. Yes, very good. The mob. <laughs> I'm going to put the mob up here because they're kind of important. Okay. And the homeowner. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think the homeowner was probably failing at this point? He was one of the four. I'm going with the good one. <laughs> well, let me put you there. If you look down at number 18 yeah. or 19, right. or maybe it's even later on the one another list, give hospitality one to another. He was practicing that, you know. The homeowner was actually, and that's not an easy thing to do sometimes, just as a simple sidebar, to have people into your house. And then, like when I used to do it, I can't tell you how many times I'd find a half-drank cup and I'd end up finding it by knocking it on the floor. So it was always fun when we had people over. And it was definitely a stretch for us to be people of hospitality. But it's not impossible. Not impossible. I'm just saying it's a stretch. And so hospitality is definitely a part of the story. But I want to say on the four friends, there's not much really told about these guys. But what is told about them? They carried them. I'm sorry? They had faith. They, what kind of faith did they have? For their friend to be healed. For their friend to be healed. And so what did they do with that faith? What was the simple thing they did? <coughs> they simply brought him to Yeshua. Now that's something, going back to prayer, that's something all of us can do. We can always bring people to Yeshua through prayer. We can always bring them to Him. And that was the most important thing. He had four guys that cared enough to say, we're going to bring you to Yeshua. And nothing's going to stop us. Not the mob, not the teachers, not anything. We're going to get you to Yeshua no matter what. And that's what the number one thing is when we learn to bear each other's burdens, we have to always look at that being one of the most important things. We want to bring people to Yeshua, in a simple sense. It always starts with an attitude. And these folks had attitude to rip apart a roof. I don't think I would have ripped up some guy's roof. <laughs> and I tell you right now, as a blind guy, going into a crowd or a mob, 
That is the number one thing I hate. I do not like doing that at all. We went to the Rockies game, and boy, I held tight to my son's arm as we walked through the crowd, because people are everywhere, and people don't look where they're going, and they run into you, and that's just crazy. It's crazy. And, you know, some people, they run into you, they fall down, and then they look at you, and people are like, they look at me like, what's my problem? Weren't you looking at me? And then when they find out I'm blind, they almost are like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you were that. But this, it's just a point is that people and mobs, it's just one of those things in life. And we have to always be willing to be stretched and get outside of our comfort zone because it's very easy to stay in a comfortable place when it comes to the mob sometimes. Now, the thing I really love about Yeshua is... Yeshua is always asking questions. And one of the things I love about Yeshua's questions is, if Yeshua is omnipotent, why in the world does He ask questions? It's for always someone else's benefit. And in this case, we have an audience. The audience is the teachers, the people at the house, whatever you want to say. Those people are always the audience. And when we ask questions, when we bear each other's burdens, we have to always remember that. There's always an audience. People are always going to watch how we bring other people to Yeshua. And it's an important part of our ministry. And I, like I said, I love the questions because Yeshua knows everything, right? And why is he asking questions? What's the purpose of the question? Well, there's a simple answer. Most of the questions are usually based on faith. It's always designed to draw out somebody's faith. <coughs> Somebody has to have the faith moment here. And who had the first faith moment? Well, they definitely had the first faith moment. Yeah, the four. I definitely agree with that. But they didn't need the faith moment from Yeshua. But who else needed the faith moment? Obviously the paralyzed guy. He needs the faith moment. We don't know what his sins are. Does Yeshua say, by the way, these are Archidates' sins. Would you like to know them all? Would you like to know all his sins? He doesn't go around and say that. But obviously he knows this guy has a lot of guilt. Maybe has a lot of struggle with whatever his sin is. And he says, your sins are forgiven. That's the first faith moment. But there's also a faith moment in the sense for the teachers and the mob of him being able to forgive sin. And this is just a clear... I love this example of Scripture because it's a clear emphasis of all the parties involved and how this was ultimately to bear one another's burden. Each person had a part to play in this, in this bearing one another's burden for this one guy. And I love this passage of Scripture because it shows it very clearly. Even if you just want to say, they were carrying him on a bed. That was pretty cool. you know. But they wanted to bear his burden and get the blessing from that. Now I'm on the last note card of notes, so I'm hoping I'm doing well on time. Yep, yep. So, how do we move forward after we, in a sense, bear someone's burden and we give of ourselves? Because I tell you, some days... And anyone that ministers, you're going to have days where you feel like, goodness, you know, how do I know I was doing that well, Lord? How do I know? 
And Paul talks about the assurance that we all have to have. At the end of the day, in our own attitude, we always have to see beyond, beyond ourselves. And I bring these moments to you as someone who teaches, and I hope that you are able to bring moments in this own thing when you go to other people and teach them, because that's kind of what verse 6 is partially about. But verses 7 and 8 are a big part of God's sovereignty. God has to always be in control, and we have to have the belief that even if we're stuck between one of the ditches of, I'm probably enabling this person, I probably don't want to share for this sake. But, you know, whatever the case might be, at the end of the day, we have to see God as the righteous judge. God is the righteous judge. And if there's someone else that would like to read that I haven't called on yet, you're welcome to jump in here. We're going to look at the passage specifically from Psalms, Psalm 7, the righteous judge in verses 7 to 11. Psalm 7, verses 7 to 11. I'll read. Okay. Let the assembled peoples gather around you, rule over them from on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. O righteous God, who searches minds and hearts, bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. My shield is God most high, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. Did you say through 11? Yes, that's fine. Was it, I'm assuming that was through 11? Yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> in this passage... David is talking to God, and he's saying some things that are very strong in a sense. And the first thing he's saying is, God, you need to check my own motives. I want to be righteous before you. I want to have the right motive in whatever I do something. I don't want to think of it in terms of, I'm only going to help this person if I see something good come from it. But at the same time, he also prays for vindication of the people around him. That God will save them. And that God will deliver them. And that's kind of at times how we have to look at God. God always knows all the facts. God always knows what we are and what we can do and what we can't do. God never expects us to do something we can't do. I know there are some things that will stretch us and be uncomfortable, but at the end of the day, the inward attitude always has to be, God is the righteous judge. And whether I do everything right or everything wrong, God will see fairly on, on all sides. On all sides. And so that's why Paul, I think, gets into this part of saying, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap the corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap fruit and eternal life. And so part of that picture is learning to let go and saying God has everything under his hand. God is going to, in a sense, vindicate me where I'm on target, and he's going to show me where I'm off target. And people, 
I'm not limit. I'm not limited to God. God can use some other people if I can't do something. And that's part of seeing God overall as the righteous judge that He's going to make sure and protect our backside if we go forth and help somebody. If we bear a burden we're supposed to bear or not bear a burden we're supposed to bear, He's going to see to it that we're okay in the end. And that's the overall attitude that we have to have that, that whether we are doing things right or wrong, God's going to cover us. And we have to have an attitude in and of ourselves of saying, at the end of the day, I'm not going to second guess myself. I'm not going to have to figure this out all the time. Now, Paul ends the passage in verses 9 and 10, and he talks about learning to do well in spite of that. Don't be weary in your doing well or in your giving, in a sense. Because I think in every part of the one another's, you're going to give something of yourself. You're going to give of yourself. And it's easy to become discouraged and tired. Everybody goes through their times where it's like, I'm having a bad day. RTDC spilled the coffee again. Whatever the case. And I don't feel like I can do it today. But God is there even in our discouraging times. And the passage I like that talks about this is in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says God is going to work in spite of us. There's one person that will do the sowing, one person that will do the reaping. And this is going back to the illustration of how we sow and how we reap in a sense. But God in the same turn, He does the increase. God will always give in a sense, the increase. And what I like about that passage is the increase is equal to the growing. And we don't know how something increases at times, especially if you try to figure it out with plants. Well, I left the plant on Monday. It was just a seedling. I left. It came back on Tuesday. There was a bud there. Wednesday, there were some stamps. What the heck happened, you know? How did it grow so fast? And it's a fact that God will always give the increase or He'll bring about the growth. And because of that, the Bible tells us over and over not to be discouraged. Because when we give to people, it's an investment. But it's not our investment. It's always God's investment. God's the one who always will invest through us. And He will take what we do, whether we know it or not, whatever thing of kindness or, or whatever thing we do to help one another, whether it's serving one another, praying for one another, teaching one another, all the different one another's that are on the sheet, God will take that and He'll invest that in the people in a way that you won't see necessarily, but it's still there. And at the end of the day, you'll some, at some point... And it's not just when we get to heaven. because That is important. We will see everything that God did on the increase side. But God is also, I want to challenge people, God is interested in showing the invisible work, the increase in the olam hazeh, this world. Okay, He's interested in showing it to us in this world. He loves us that much that He wants to say, hey, I want to show you guys how you blessed this person. 
And it's incredible when he does it, when he decides to say, I'm going to pull back the curtain and you're going to get to see how you bless this person. He is always interested in showing you that invisible work when he's ready. But the, but the bottom line is we do things over and over again. We have to try to keep guard against discouragement because discouragement happens. And at the end it tells us we're to do these things within the family of God or within the household of God. Why do you think he says that at the end of the passage? Why would he tell us, learn to do these things in the household of God? Are we just cute and clever? As Rabbi Hammond would say, we're just cute and clever. Well, it's a couple of things. Mainly, I think we understand grace. And we also understand, hopefully, this word. And I'll get even bigger if we need to have it even bigger. Hopefully, we understand grace and forgiveness. Because believers are always forgiven, hopefully. And we should, because we're forgiven, we should know how to show each other grace. And that's why Paul points to that and says, if you learn how to do these things, how you bear one another's burdens within a family, within a loving community, you will learn how to, in a sense, grow in them. And if you try to go out and take them out to the world, what do you think will probably happen? Well, he says it's like sometimes throwing pearls before swine. Because sometimes the world doesn't want your help. Or maybe they don't want your help but they don't want Jesus with the help or Yeshua with the help either. So it's kind of hard to bring them to Yeshua if they're like, that's okay, we just want your money, or we just want your food, or we just want you know, a ride somewhere, but don't tell us anything. And I mean, it's always about bringing people to Yeshua, just like the four people in the story earlier. So in a sense, that's kind of the teaching tonight. It's kind of geared at reciprocity, how we give to each other and how God gives back to us and how God uses what we give to Him through giving to people. God doesn't need money. He doesn't need... He doesn't even need people at times, but He likes to use us if we're willing and able. And if we're saying, Lord, I just want to be available. I just want to be available to whatever You want me to do. Because like I said, it's not about how cute and clever or able you are, but how willing you are. Are there any questions about the study tonight as my alarm goes off? Since you wouldn't read, would you close us in prayer? Thank you. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for this word tonight, Lord, and for bringing us together. And I pray, Lord, that this word would... um, be planted deep within our hearts, Lord, and that we would take it forward and um, that it would uh, bless others as we've, as we've learned tonight, Lord. So we just thank you, and I just pray for each one that are traveling home to get home safely. Uh, just thank you for this time. In Yeshua's sweet name, amen. Amen.